morning. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. I'm going to ask you to join me. Our Father, heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I was in a coffee shop, and I overheard a conversation. The man that I heard speak was someone I knew distantly, not personally. It's a small town. I happened to know that he was involved very heavily in Alcoholics Anonymous as a counselor of other people who were struggling. He was sitting at the table with a man who was much younger than him, who obviously was there for that reason. And the older gentleman said to him, I didn't mean to listen in, but it was loud enough I could hear. He said to him, you know, I don't know if I believe in God all the time, but every morning I get up and pray to him. Isn't that an interesting comment? It's an interesting comment because, in my opinion, it speaks concerning a human condition. A human condition that sometimes flies in the face of logic. Sometimes people will tell you they don't believe in God, and then in the same conversation later tell you they're angry with God. Or they will say they're not sure they believe in God, but admit that in times of crisis they cry out to God. Why is it so interesting? Because I think prayer is a universal response to life itself. Thus the title of our series that lasts for five weeks, Prayer, the Heart's True Home. Everybody prays. But I'd like to ask a series of questions concerning prayer. The first question is, what is it? Now you say that's a pretty basic question. Yes, it is, but let's start with the basics. Here's what prayer is. Prayer is direct access to our Heavenly Father. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I hope this gets better, Bob. We all know that. Um, Really? Maybe you know it here. But if you know it here, and you really believe it, wouldn't at least on some occasions you be overwhelmed by it? That you, little you, With your tiny little insignificant problems compared to the bigger problems of the world, have deliberate, direct access to the God of the universe who is sovereign over all things. That is remarkable. 
But that's what prayer is. It's direct, unfettered access to God. But it also is deliberate, direct, unfettered access to God. Why do I say deliberate? Because prayer is not automatic. We decide to pray or we don't. We determine if we're going to pray. We deliberately enter into conversation with God. It doesn't just happen. It's part of our responsibility. So what is prayer? It's direct access to God and deliberate access to God. A second question, very simple, who can pray? Well, here's what I want to remind you of. Prayer is not just for experts. It's for beginners. And can you imagine a greater contrast between one expert and a beginner than the disciples and Jesus? Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, is the same person who prays to his heavenly Father. I think that's probably an expert. And at the same time, Jesus invites his disciples, who probably aren't experts, at least not at his level, to enter into a conversation with God. I love a quote that I have used multiple times from C.S. Lewis. He says, prayer is not just about deliberate access to God. Prayer is about speaking to God honestly who you are. So for instance, who can pray? It's for sinful, self-centered people. I mentioned this in the first service, and I wasn't struck by a bolt of lightning, so I'm going to try to do it again and see if I can dodge it one more time. There's one time in the life of Jesus where it seems to me he was remarkably self-centered. I know. I shouldn't, but I did. Remember the time when he's in the garden? And he's struggling in prayer with the Father. And he says, God, please. I don't want to go through with this. God, is there another way? Show me another way. Do you think he was just mouthing words? Do you think he was just saying them on our behalf? Well, that's your prerogative. If you think that's the way it was, I don't. I think he was struggling with it the same way I would have. In the same way you would have. And he's saying to God, God, please, I don't want this. Is there another way? Now think about it, my friends. That is all about one thing. Himself. He's talking about his concern. He's talking about his weakness. He's talking about his fear. And he's saying, God, this one is about me, please. So even Jesus illustrates to us that prayer can come from anyone, including people like us, who are self-serving, selfish, and sometimes we think self-sufficient until our backs are to the wall. Prayer is also for the person who's honest. The person who is honest, who is open, who's believing. That's why Jesus uses the example of children as the best illustration of faith. 
Children are honest and open. If they've got a need, they say it. They're believing because they think that if they ask, somebody's going to give it to them. Jesus says, live life like that. Pray like that. That's who's invited to pray. Those kind of people. I see myself everywhere there except the experts. What about you? The second major question is how should we pray? How should we pray? Well, there are a lot of clues in Scripture concerning how we ought to pray, so I can't list them all, but I'll I'll mention three. The first one is this. We should pray unceasingly or continually. Now, that could mean never stop praying. Just walk around praying all the time, saying the words with your head in the clouds and you're no earthly good at all. And all of that sounds really interesting, but surely it doesn't make sense in light of who we know Jesus is and who we know the disciples were and who the saints have been. People don't walk around in the clouds praying like that all the time. It might also mean pray without ceasing. In other words, don't stop. Don't get so discouraged that you quit. Keep it up. Pray unceasingly. But it could also mean this, and I think the last two are what it does mean. It could mean live your life with an attitude of prayer. Always. Continually. In other words, when you're walking around next week, Instead of just focusing on life this way, focus on life this way and that way. Continually this defined by that. Allow prayer to be so much a part of your life that as you walk, you stop. Perhaps not for a long time. Perhaps for no more than two or three words. And in the middle of your day, you just say, oh God, please help me. Oh God, make me effective. Dear God, help me with my impatience. Dear Lord Jesus, help me to be loving. Heavenly Father, help them. How long does that take? It's a lifestyle. Unceasing, unending prayer. So not only are we instructed to pray continually, we're we're instructed to pray fervently. There's a wonderful story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, and that's another reference, James 5, 16. But I want to tell you the story from Luke 18. It's a story about a persistent widow. Now, it didn't actually happen, probably. We don't know for sure. Jesus is telling a story, and it might be a parable, or it might have actually happened. And he's telling the story to the disciples, and he's telling the story for the express purpose of telling them how to pray. And he said, I want to tell you a story. There was this widow. There was a widow who had an injustice in her life and she kept going back to the judge over and over and over again and explaining to him the injustice and asking for a remedy and finally the judge got so sick of hearing her that he gave her what she wanted. Now you might say to yourself, wow, 
That's pretty unspiritual. That doesn't sound like God. But I don't think Jesus' application takes it to the nth degree with the widow. But basically he said this. Look at the widow. Notice how persistent she was. Notice how she wouldn't let the judge go. And she continued to cry out for justice. Jesus said, I want you to continue. He, he speaks about justice. I want you to continue to cry out for justice. Just like the widow did. Without stopping. Fervently. Until God answers your prayer. That's how I want you to pray, says Jesus. I want you to pray unceasingly and fervently, and I'm going to make up a word. I want you to pray believingly. Okay? I want you to pray in faith. The passage up there, James 1, 2 through 8, says it well. It says, if you really want something from God, then pray as if God is going to give it to you. In other words, don't pray with doubt. You say, how can I not pray with doubt because I'm full of doubt? Well, he doesn't mean that. He just means don't pray in such a way that you say, I'm going to go ahead and pray. It won't make any difference at all. I don't believe it, but I'll do it. Don't pray like that, says Jesus, through James. What you need to do is pray. You need to pray unceasingly. You need to pray fervently. And you need to pray like God is going to hear and to answer. Go ahead, pray that way. Don't you love that? It doesn't answer all my questions about prayer, but it tells me it's okay to pray that way. Pray unceasingly. Pray fervently. Pray believingly. A fourth question, what difference does it make? You're going to pray? Jesus instructs us to? What happens? First thing is this, we see it in Philippians chapter 4. Don't you love this passage? Those of you who might not remember it, let me remind you of what it says. Paul says to Christians at Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness, gentleness be made known to all people, for the Lord is near. He's present with you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication through thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or overarches all understanding, which stands above reason itself, that peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because you prayed. So what's the result of prayer? It calms our fears. How many times have you witnessed it? I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed it. In moments of crisis, at the bedside of a dying parishioner, what do you say? What do you do? You pray. Prayer does more to calm our fears than anything else. Third, what's the result of prayer? It transfers our burdens. I love this image. Peter says, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to take all your cares, which are like a burden on your back. Think of the image of Pilgrim's Progress with this big laden burden on your back. I want, to take, I want you to take all of your burdens and I want you to cast them on him because he cares for you. I want you to take the backpack off and I want you to throw it over on God's side because he cares for you. So prayer is that kind of activity. God, I can't take it anymore. I'm coming to you. Please give me something. Help, peace, take the burden. It actually happens, my friend. Prayer transfers burdens. It does. If you haven't experienced that, try it. There's something else that prayer does. It upholds others. Paul was speaking to the Ephesians and he was talking to them about a variety of things, the sovereignty of God and prayer. And then now down there at the end, he said, I need prayer. Pray for me, will you? And furthermore, I want you to pray for all the saints. Why? Because it makes a difference. Because it upholds people. Do you ever wonder if your prayers make a difference in the life of the person you're praying for? Believe it. I don't know what difference it makes, but believe it. Maybe it's not the greatest theology, but like the man at the coffee house, even if you wonder, keep praying. Um, sometimes in moments of crisis in other people's life, we're called on to pray for them. And some people just have a remarkable, overwhelming faith in prayer. In this past year, we had uh, a member of our family, not immediate, but a little bit extended, though very close, go through serious difficulty. I won't go into the details, but I mean really, really bad. And my wife and her three sisters decided, based on the admonition of one of the sisters, that every Monday morning or throughout the day would be a day of prayer and fasting for this person. So my wife, being the dutiful person that she is, every Monday morning prayed and fasted. And I think her sisters prayed throughout the day and, and skipped meals as well. I mean, it really crimped my style because my wife wasn't making my breakfast on Monday morning. <laughs> but she was serious with her sisters. They prayed. We were in Florida over Christmas. And we were in the company of the folks that we were praying for. And I was amazed. I was amazed uh, by the recovery I saw. There are lots of things that came together to make the recovery happen. But I am absolutely convinced that this individual, these two individuals, were affected by prayer. I know it. Because it happens. Prayer upholds others. 
Intercessory prayer is critical for those that you love. Pray for them. It also does something else, and this is tricky. No, that one's not tricky. The last one's tricky. This was not as tricky. It gives us God's perspective on reality. I guarantee you I'm going to go long, okay? So just don't look at that clock. Hang with me. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is, is this passage, 2 Kings 6. I want to tell you the story very quickly. Um, Israel is basically surrounded by enemies. Um, and the king of Israel is constantly on the run and trying to figure out what to do about his enemies. And there's a prophet named Elisha. And one of the enemy kings is the king of Aram. And the king of Aram is always after the king of Israel. And he has these plans, well-laid plans, to be at a certain location. And he thinks he can get the king of Israel. And when he arrives, the king of Israel with his army is not there. And then he begins to realize what's happening. He says, they're not there for a reason. They knew. They knew not to be there. And he calls his generals and all his officers together, and he says, which one of you is the snitch? There's somebody among you that's telling the enemy where we're going to be. You come out and tell me who it is right now. And one of his generals stands up to him and says, King, it's none of us. I'll tell you who it is. It's a prophet in Israel called Elisha. Whatever you whisper in your bedroom, God whispers in his ear. Elisha had been telling the king over and over again when he would go here or there, don't go there. The king of Aram's going to be there. And the king would modify his plans. So on a particular day, the king of Aram, I would assume he decided not to tell anybody about this or even to whisper it in his bedroom because he's afraid God would hear. He decides he's going to surround the city where Elisha is. He's going to go to the source of the problem and take the old man out. So he surrounds a city where Elisha is called Dothan. And at Dothan, Elijah's in his house with his servant. And they completely surround the city, which has got hills all around it. And his servant comes out to get the Sunday morning paper. No, he comes out to see what the day's like. And he looks up and he says, oh my, we're in trouble. Surrounding the entire city were armies of the king of Aram. And they were about to invade. And he runs back in and he says, Master, Master, we're in big trouble. Come out here and look. We're surrounded. You know what Elisha says? He prays. He says, oh God, open my servant's eyes. Help him to see that there are more with us than there are with them. His servant goes back out, looks up, and surrounding the armies of the king of Aram, are the armies of the Lord of hosts with angels. That's what prayer does. It opens your eyes. It's not just about how you affect God. It's how God affects you. The end of that story is even better. The angel of the Lord blinds the armies of the king of Aram. And Elijah goes to their leader and says, let me tell you something. Imagine this. He's blind, right? And Elisha's talking to him. What's he going to do? 
Elisha says to him, you're at the wrong place. You're at the wrong city. I'll take you to the right place. And the guy says, okay. And Elisha leads him to the city where the king of Israel is. And he gets there, and he shows the king of Israel all these blind soldiers that have been following him. And the king of Israel says, oh, goody, goody, this is our chance. Shouldn't we just strike them all down right here? And Elisha said, that wouldn't be very nice. What? Very nice, they're going to kill us if we don't kill them. No, he said, here's what we need to do. We need to give them a full course meal and then send them back. He opened their eyes, gave them a full course meal, and sent them back. And the text says, there was peace between the two nations. How about that? This servant just couldn't see the reality that was in front of him. And God opened his eyes. That's what prayer does. Prayer also actually makes a difference. I'll say this briefly because it's hard to understand and controversial. If God is sovereign, how in the world can we affect sovereignty? But something about the Bible tells us that when we pray, God hears. If you have a certain kind of theology, you might say, well, God was planning on doing whatever he was going to do anyway, and you happen to align with his will. Maybe so. I don't understand it either, but I do know this. God promises that if we pray, he hears us. And he'll answer. He may answer no. He may answer yes. He may do it another way. But God hears. If you want to see the tension between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of people, his saints, there's no better illustration than Exodus 32, where Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after he's had the law of God delivered him by the hand of God, and the people are dancing around a golden calf that they're now worshiping, and they say, forget the God of Moses, he's gone anyway, we're going to worship this calf. God is absolutely outraged by their activity. And Moses is on his way down, and God says to Moses, step out of the way. I'm going to do my thing now. I'm going to wipe them out, all of them. I'm going to kill all of them. And I'm going to make you a great nation. Forget them. Here's what the text says. Moses said, no God, please, don't do that. What about your reputation? What about your namesake? What about these people that you said were going to be the ones that would inherit the promise? Don't do that. I mean, I can't believe Moses did this. Would you have the boldness? Whoa, God, don't do it. And it says God relented and did not destroy them. I don't know how you work on that one. You can spend the week working on it as it relates to the sovereignty of God. But there's something there that tells us prayer makes a difference. Final point of application um, I want to make is this. In your activity of prayer, and that's what we're calling everyone too. As a matter of fact, we're going to have 
a congregational-wide call to prayer after the series is over. Like on a Sunday night, we'll talk about details later. The elders are going to have a weekend prayer retreat in which we implement uh, the things we're talking about. But as it relates to you personally, right here, right now, and going forward, I would give you this bit of advice. Set a time to pray. It creates a pattern. Randomness never creates efficiency, right? You won't get it done unless you decide to do it and when you're going to do it. So don't say to yourself, I'm going to pray continually. I'm just not going to set a time for it. No, you need to set a time for it. A number of years ago, I was on my way back from Pakistan, which I'll be on my way back from Pakistan in about two weeks again, visiting a missionary there. And on the way, the pilot had just announced that they were beginning their initial descent. Well, what was interesting about their initial descent is before he announced that, there was an older gentleman who was of the Muslim faith sitting right in front of me because I got one of those seats that had a lot of leg room. And he was down on his prayer mat praying because it was his time of prayer. Three times a day. And I want to tell you, friends, it didn't make any difference what the pilot said or what the steward said. The man was going to finish his prayer. When Peter and John show us one of the first miracles of God through Jesus Christ after his ascension to the Father, they're on their way to the temple at the time of prayer. The point is, there are lots of religions, Jewish and Muslim and others, who have sequential times of prayer. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter a whit whether or not you agree with their theology. How about their methodology? What's wrong with that? We all have cell phones, don't we? We can set alarms for anything, anytime we want. Why not set an alarm for three times a day? Pick your time. And you stop and you pray. Doesn't have to be long. Could be a sentence. But it's a pattern. So pick a time. I think that's a good idea. Second thing, start small and don't get discouraged. Don't try to move mountains. Don't try to be a prayer warrior or make big promises concerning your prayer life. Just start small. If you're like me, I make New Year's resolutions and I have these big ideas about them and then I pull a hamstring because I went out too strong, right? Don't do that with prayer. Just start small. When it's hard, and it will be hard. I promise you, it's going to be hard at some point. And you're going to feel like you're up against the wall and you don't know what to say. Pray the prayers of others. Just, just Google prayers. They're all over the place. I have a favorite book. It's uh, John Bailey's Daily Prayers, Morning and Evening Prayers. I use it every day. And I pray his prayers, his words, and allow them to wash over me and set the agenda for my day. If you don't like written prayers like that, just go to the Psalms. Pray the Psalms like their prayers. You might be surprised how often David is speaking your very inner thoughts in a psalm. It's a powerful way to pray. And maybe you want to organize your prayers in a manner like this. Adoration, that's basically praising who God is. Confession, that's confession of sin. Thanksgiving, you know what that is. Supplication, please, Lord, hear. On my behalf, on behalf of the people I love, 
it's really easy to remember the acronym, A-C-T-S, Acts, like the book of Acts. You might try it as a pattern for prayer. Next week, that'll be the focus of the sermon, the pattern for prayer. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. But what we're also going to do for the next five weeks, at the end of the sermon, we're going to invite you to pray collectively the Lord's Prayer, as I will invite you to do. And just for purposes of uniformity, let's use trespasses. So will you join me praying as Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.